0: Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome.
1: And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 37 Jaws Movie Review. <laughs>
0: Hey, Chris McBride here along with Yancey Eden. As always, Yancey, uh, before we get into things this week, uh, have you noticed there's been this thing going around on Facebook lately? I know you're not as into Facebook as as you used to be, but uh, there's this thing going around where everyone's posting like nine bands I've seen and one Mm -hmm. is a lie. Have you seen this thing?
1: I have seen this, yes. It's like
0: it's completely taken over my timeline. Have you been involved with this in any way?
1: I have not. Um, I, I saw a, a couple pieces of it. Whenever I hop on Facebook, my relationship is very, very minimal. Where I I go to, we have a private, you know, Facebook page with just my or Facebook group with just my family, and you know, I just go in there to see pictures of my nieces and nephews, and then get the hell off. So I don't really, you know, dabble too much, but. And then- and the, the few minutes that I was on it this week, I did see multiple, multiple postings of this exact same thing over and over again. I went ahead and posted my own version of it. So what I did was I posted and I said, uh, I said, only one of
0: these bands I have seen in concert. And he guesses as to which one it is. And it's like Nickelback, 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 <laughs> Nickelback, 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 <laughs> Triumph. <laughs> oh, God. As you, you probably may know about me, I do not like Nick Nickelback, so...
1: Well, good for you. And i Canadian. Canadian I don't no either. I, and people are like, hey,
0: man, they're Canadian, man. I don't understand what the hate is. You know the thing is, the only way that you could get me to a Nickelback concert is with a wheelbarrow, a roll of duct tape, and an ether rag. <laughs>
1: And everyone knows how much I love Fonzie. I don't know if you've seen any of the Sharknado movies. Shatner and Takei are going to be there. I cannot believe that this is actually possible. The Star Wars prequels were awful. Young Doctors in Love. Young Doctors in Love. Bad CGI kind of starts and ends with George Lucas. Some of the worst CGI I have ever seen in my
0: entire life. He ruined the whole original trilogy by superimposing Hayden Christensen over Sebastian Shaw at the end of Jedi. Uh, Okay, so anyway, so this week uh, we're we're reviewing uh, a film... One of my favorite movies of all time. One of the top movies that I've ever seen in my entire life. It means a lot to me. It's obviously a Gen X film. It's a big one. It's Jaws. So I've I've sort of thrown the gauntlet down and uh, and I had you go and watch it. Did you watch it twice this week? Is that right?
1: I did watch it twice this week, yes. I watched it, I think, Saturday after we'd recorded it on Friday. And then I watched it just again yesterday, so... Pretty, pretty fresh in my mind. So very, very fresh
0: in your mind too. It's, it's a like I say, it's an important movie for me. So uh, going back a little bit, you know, set things up. I first saw this movie when I was seven years old, and I was at the drive-in. So I basically I convinced my mom to take me to go see the, this movie. The movie had been out for two years already. It was 1977, and it was at the playing at the drive-in. And I was like, Mom, you got to take me to this movie. And she's like, uh, I really don't think that's a good idea, son. It's a scary movie, and you know, blah, blah blah blah, and I don't think you're gonna like it, you know, and all this. No, 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 Mom, I'm, I'm mature, you know. I mean, I can watch these movies. I don't get scared, you know, that, blah, blah, blah. And so I convinced her that she would take me. So she took me, um, you know, to see the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> oh, gotcha. It was just craziness. So, yep. oh, I remember being in there. And we'll talk about some of the scenes later. There's a few gotcha moments in the movie. But, oh, man, was I scared. Made it through about halfway through the movie. And then I was like, okay, mom, oh, I'm, I'm really, really scared and I want to go home. <laughs> so, so, anyway. Um, so, okay. So, you watched it uh, this week twice. So, it's very, very mm-hmm. fresh in your mind. As a millennial you know who who is not emotionally attached to this film as a child like i was that scared the pants off me and then but maybe really appreciate movies oh huge huge we'll get into that but uh how does the movie hold up
1: how does it hold up for me yes. um okay so and for your generation we we've talked about this in the past where it's difficult to be critical about something and be obvious or not obvious uh, objective about it and state things that you might you know, think are little flaws, or have you know, slight critiques or, or criticisms, and make it sound like you still also like the movie. I do enjoy this movie very, very much. I think it's, um, you know, one of the first, you know, like real blockbusters, one of the first actual like perfect summer movies. You know, this came out Fourth of July weekend, which you know, in hindsight, it would have been nice if we timed this where it, it kind of correlated with that holiday; it would have been perfect. But you know, it, it, it's fine. But, um, I. I <sighs> I I liked it a lot and I can see where the reverence comes from, you know, towards this film. There were just certain aspects that I had a really difficult time overcoming, mainly like the animatronic part of the actual shark itself. I think 70% of the movie is absolutely perfect. Uh, You know, the first and second act, I have no qualms with it whatsoever. I thought it was, it, it was well executed, well shot. The acting was perfect. The casting was perfect. The score, John Williams' score, just adds so much to it. I literally had zero complaints for the entire, uh, you know, first chunk of the movie. Um, the the complaints with the actual shark itself is only because I'm coming at this as somebody who has driven a Corvette, and I'm kind of being shown like the Ford Model T, so it's kind of hard for me to have that same, you know. Awe and amazement that, you know, maybe somebody like you had whenever you first saw it, whenever I I've seen, you know, different iterations of, of, of animatronics and CGI in special effects. You see what I'm saying? So it's like I appreciate that it was it was groundbreaking at the time, but it's it's hard for me to be genuinely amazed at what they were able to do just because I've experienced so much after that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna flip things around on you and I'm gonna totally disagree with you. I think that it goes the other way. I think that this movie is the Corvette and the movies from your generation are like mm-hmm. Yugos compare to it because here's the thing i know what you're used to watching cgi right and, right. and, and so so mm-hmm. your problem and you make a good point your problem is in the third act when you finally get to see the shark right and you're like hey it's a great big rubber shark and that you know, right. sorry, I have problems with this, right? But if it was, you know, they've done CG, CGI sharks in the movies before. Or something like Deep Blue Sea, it was terrible, right? It so, was, it was awful. So, yep. so you know, I guess you could throw that up there. But here's the thing: if n- number one, as you know, right from our, what was it, episode two of this podcast, I have been saying, you know, I don't like CGI. I like the old school animatronics and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just yep. looks better. It looks real. It actually occupies space with the actors. It just seems to work a lot better so for that reason i'm gonna say that i liked you know jaws better as a non-cgi thing but here's the main reason why it's better as a as a non-cgi thing if this movie had been made today with cgi the opening sequence when when chrissy watkins goes out into the water and swims Right. Played mm-hmm. by Susan Baklany, and she swims out there and she gets attacked. At Very lovely, by the you know? way. Very yeah. lovely woman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she goes out there and she gets attacked by the shark at the opening scene. The, the way that Spielberg wanted to film that scene was to have the shark come right out of the water. He wanted it to be immediately. You're in the theater and all of a sudden, wham, you see this huge thing. He wanted to make a monster movie. Right. But the problem was, is that this great big 25 and they had three sharks, by the way, but um, they had a left one, a right one and a full one, but none of them worked. Right, They couldn't get these things to work, especially when they built these things on these big kind of like rocker arms. And then, you know? okay, they got to get it to work, but then let's take it out and put it out into the salt water. Ah, uh, Yeah, it didn't work so good, right? So, but the thing was, because the shark didn't work, they couldn't do that. Okay, we can't do that scene. Okay, now what are we going to do? Okay, now we, now the other one too, and I thought this was interesting, just last week, Michael Salfino. I don't know if you know Michael on Twitter. He's a fantasy baseball guy. Yeah, yep, I know Mike. He, yeah, he's a great guy. He sent out a tweet, and I just thought it was such an interesting thread of tweets about movies, and he was talking about Jaws. And he brought up a really good point that in the scene where Brody's on the beach and sees the Kittner boy get attacked. He's supposed to see a lot more than what you see in the movie. The shark, again, is supposed to come right out of the water. He has to see it attack this kid. And they couldn't get the shark to work. So he didn't get to see that either. So it's, you know, it's well over halfway through the movie before you finally see the shark. And Mm -hmm. so the fact that, which is perfect, which again, that's not the way they planned it. But because you couldn't see it, of course, what's more terrifying than your imagination? Nothing, right? So the fact that you can't see anything and all you hear is John Williams, you know, EF two note score, it scares scares the daylight side of people and mm-hmm. it, that's what made it so good so if there was cgi this movie would just be another run-of-the-mill movie that you go to see and after two weeks it's out of theaters
1: and you forget all about it and you're on
0: to the next one but i think that the fact that it's non-cgi is what makes it so fantastic for so many different I,
1: reasons I, I do agree with what you're saying but i don't necessarily mean that um you know it's better because or it would have been better because of CGI. You know animatronics in itself is much better today. I mean look at some of the Lord of the Rings films. You see what I'm saying mm-hmm. where those those look like real things. It doesn't necessarily have to be CGI to enhance it, but like I said it, it in the end it is an inflatable rubber shark and that was kind of something that I had a really difficult time reconciling was just the actual shark itself. But like you said um you know by by chance or happenstance or or what have you we didn't see the shark for a vast majority of the film which enhanced it which i actually really liked um you know the the biggest thing with me with this film chris is i'm not one who has ever been a fan of like the whole creature feature type film where Mm -hmm. it's just about like whatever x type of monster with these x type of features that doesn't appeal to me at all i like the fact that there's a difference between you know surprise and suspense and this movie isn't about a surprise gotcha things pop out of the water something comes out from behind you know that does nothing for me. The the emotional and like the you know the 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 hidden suspense that you get from this is just. It, I mean, it builds up through the entire half, the first half of the film, and like I said, I I almost wish they would have even pushed it further and further and further to where maybe we didn't have a reveal of the creature until the very end. But I mean, that's. I'm talking about this a lot, but it is, it's a minor issue with it. Like I said, it's not like it it ruins the film or anything for me, but I think the first act of the film is so much stronger than the second half. And I, I, would you say you agree with that? Would you would you put the first half, you know, when you when you haven't seen the shark yet, above the second act, or or what are your thoughts on that?
0: I do, and it works in a couple of different ways. Number one, as you said, and as I mentioned earlier, the suspense—you don't see anything; you just hear the sound, mm-hmm. you know, in the soundtrack or the score rather—and and so so for that reason, it, it works better too. Um, so 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 I think there's the, the suspense thing. The other thing is that when you finally do see the shark. It's okay. So here's the thing. There's a few. You mentioned about gotcha moments. You, you know, you said, "Oh, there's not a, It's not really like you know, jump out of the the, the shadows, scary parts in the movie." And you're right. right. But there are a few gotcha moments in the movie. And um, you know, one of them, the one that everyone always goes to, is Ben Gardner's boat when Ben Gardner comes out of the boat, right when his corpse comes mm-hmm. out as a big scary moment. But for me, the creepiest scene in this movie. Is when, remember when the shark, the guy, the the, the guys, um, the boy scouts are in the pond and they're doing like their one mile run, swim or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. the shark goes into the pond and it's halfway through the movie. You haven't seen the shark yet. And then all of a sudden the, there's the guy that's like the scout leader and he's like rowing his boat. Hey, you guys okay over there? Is everything going okay? And all of a sudden the shark comes up. And you see the fin, and it just hits his boat. He's in a little rowboat, and the rowboat goes over. So then he's scrambling to try and get get up onto the boat. And as he is, the shark, you finally see it under the water, and it's coming in sideways at him, really slow. That, to mm-hmm. me, is the creepiest scene in the entire movie. The creepiest Not scene. Really? It, it creeped me out. Because you hadn't seen the shark yet, and then finally you see it, and you're like, holy smokes, and it's huge, and it's coming in sideways, really slow, with its mouth open. It's just, to me, that was so... so It was just so creepy. Oh, and then, of course, the scene right after that, it it bites the guy. And then, as you remember, the leg falls down. And when when, when they show his severed leg, when it hits the bottom of the ocean floor, that was the exact moment when I turned to my mom in the drive-in and said, Mom, I want to go home. (laughs) I was (laughs) so scared. That leg, when I saw that leg, I was like, oh, my God, I got to go home. (laughs) And
1: what's so wild about that scene, too, and, and actually most of the shark scenes in this film is they take place during the day. You know, obviously, you know, people are going to go out to the beach and go swimming and stuff during the day. So it makes sense that that's whenever you would see it. But like to, to make something that suspenseful and that terrifying, you know, in at noon, you know what I mean? Like we a, a lot of times, like one of the, the main tropes that all these, you know, present day horror films use is it's dark and the unknown, the abyss. You can't physically see what's out there. So there's that unknown factor that kind of adds to the tension. You know what I mean? Just being in a dark room by yourself, you know terrify some people. So you don't even need a monster. But like to to do it in the afternoon like that with literally hundreds of people around, you know, some people find comfort in being surrounded by like a large group of people and the fact that like there's this like monster who's almost disguised by the fact that there are so many people. So, you know, one lifeguard can't possibly watch, you know, an entire boy scout troop or, you know, he can't comb the entire beach and make sure that every single person is accounted for at all times, you know? So it's kind of like that it's playing on that fear of like You know, if I'm in a stadium and I have a heart attack, you know, watching a football game, I'm less likely to be spotted as if, you know, I was the only person standing on the field. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of like it's playing onto that, like uh, that being like a huge mob of people and, you know, there being a predator amongst these hundreds and hundreds of people swimming in the water. You know, it's just I, I think that's like an interesting play on it, too, like I said, and just how to do it in broad daylight like that. I think it's interesting not to jump around, but I think it's interesting how you talked about that one particular scene being the most like suspenseful and terrifying to you I mean the, just the one scene where you know it shows like the the woman swimming and it shows like her legs kicking back and forth and it's kind of dark but you can still make out you know her her body and stuff I thought that was the single most like iconic and effective scene in the entire film and I wish there was more of that. And I don't know how you feel about that. Like, do you think if there were more scenes similar to that, you know, the actual water scenes itself would it have added to it? Or do you think it would have kind of lessened the effect as a film went on if they kept using it over and over again? No,
0: I, I think I think that they did actually use it to good effect. One of the things that they did in this movie was one, Spielberg wanted to be right at the eye level of the water. So because when you go into the water, you're right at eye level. Right. And so he wanted to get down right. at eye level to shoot some of the scenes.
1: Well, I didn't think about that. But yeah, well, it's I like it's,
0: it's 1975 they don't have anything that can do that. They don't have a camera that can, you can put in the water. It just doesn't exist. So he had to invent one. So they had to invent this thing that would basically go around the camera and allow it to be because if you'll notice there's scenes where the water's lapping up and you can kind of almost mm. see under the water for a second and then up, up again. And so they had to invent that stuff. And that's what makes it so cool. And, you know, going back to what you made a really good point of thought about it being uh, the first blockbuster ever. And it, and it really was. It was the first mm. blockbuster. You got to realize 1975, this movie was released on June the 20th, 1975. It was originally scheduled to be released at Christmas time, but the, the, because the, the way they went so over um, schedule on, in shooting the movie and then editing this sucker that they, it wasn't ready to go out for Christmas. And so then, oh, okay, we got to push it off and come out in the summer. Oh, well, that kind of sucks because at the time, movies that came out in the summer, that was sort of reserved for like low-end movies. All the low-end movies came out in the summer. And all of a sudden, Jaws was released in the summer. It became a blockbuster, literally, people lined up around the block to go see it. So it was the very first blockbuster of all time. It was, it quickly became the highest grossing film of all time. It didn't last
1: I don't long. I don't mean to denigrate the film and make it sound like they they just lucked into having a blockbuster like this, but it is weird how circumstance kind of dictated how a lot of things went with this film, you know, like oh, yeah, with the absolutely. With, with filming and the release date and stuff like that and it actually was just a perfect storm. You know what I mean? Like It was
0: it was. You're totally just, just going back to what I said before. The shark. If the shark would have worked, this would have been a monster movie that we would have fit in with all the other monster and disaster movies of the 70s. The Poseidon Adventure and, you know, uh, Planet of the Apes and all this stuff that came out in the 70s. It would have been just another one and it would be gone again. But the, you're right. The fact that the shark didn't work. That played into the suspense of the film. The fact that it came out in the summertime. Guess when everyone's going to the beach? In the summertime. You know, yep. like, it's just, you're right. There, there was a lot of circumstantial, like, like most good things in life, you know, that, that are incredibly successful. There's a lot of luck involved. A lot of skill. But mm. there's a lot of luck involved, too. And, and you're going back to the CGI thing. Like, if you think about it, like, like the budget of this movie. The original budget of this movie was $3.5 million. It wound up costing about $8 because they went over budget. That is an equivalent to about $35 million today. Mm-hmm. Just compare that. Pirates of the Caribbean cost three hundred forty-two million dollars to make. Titanic was two hundred ninety-five million dollars to make. This movie cost thirty-five. Comparatively, you know, like, like, and and it's it's equally as effective, if not more effective, than than, than movies with all these CGI things. There was a couple scenes where they could have used the CGI when they were shooting it. So, for example, um, they, they, they shot the movie in Martha's Vineyard. You're probably aware of that, right?
1: Right. Uh, yeah.
0: And, and so they wanted um, Spielberg like Martha's Vineyard um, because. It was one of the few places where they could go out about a mile or two miles offshore, and it was still 20 feet deep and a sandy bottom. So it was perfect for them to rig up this shark out there. So that was one thing. And the other thing was when you were out there, you know, two miles out, no matter what direction you looked in, you couldn't see land. It was water. And he wanted to give those scenes the feeling. He wanted to give the audience the feeling these guys are out in the middle of nowhere. And they're completely isolated because if you could see land in the background, you'd be like, hey, the shark's attacking your boat. Just drive into the shore. You know what I mean? Like, just just go get, get away. You couldn't you couldn't get away. That was the whole idea of the scene. Problem is, they're out there. They're shooting. And all of a sudden, think about this. It's 1975, 1974, when they're shooting it. Right. And they want to give the, the the impression of isolation. All of a sudden, in the distance, you see a sailboat. Well, what do you do? You have to wait until that sailboat is gone and out of the shot so you have to wait you know a half an hour to an hour because it's so far away for it to move across the horizon it finally then
1: lighting is different the sunlight's different you know the tides may have switched like there's a lot to take into account for that yeah or
0: or worse as soon as it gets out of the shot you start filming and another sailboat comes along damn (laughs) and this happened continuously nowadays you just cgi you just digitally remove it Right. It wouldn't matter. And, and this, so they're being shot off of Martha's Vineyard. I think there was like a regatta or something like that going on down in New York area. So all these ships were all, all these boats were all headed down there. So there was just boat after boat after boat. They couldn't shoot anything. And then when they finally would get the cameras rolling, say, okay, now we can shoot. The shark's not working. So it's just like, uh, what are we doing here? This is, you know, this is crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and so, so some other things uh, that I wanted to touch base on. Um, yeah, I mentioned Martha's Vineyard. That was really cool. Um, so the book, I don't know if, you, if you've ever read the book. I, don't. I have not, Chris. Okay, no, so, so in the book, the interesting thing in the book was there was a romance between Hooper and Ellen Brody in the book. And it's, it's quite a big part of the, the book, too. And, uh, and they obviously left that out of the, of the movie. The other thing I thought was interesting was Peter Benchley is actually in the movie. He does a cameo in the film. And remember the scene where the reporter is on the beach and he's looking at the camera and he's saying, you know, uh, he's talking about the beaches, you know, possibly being closed and blah, 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 this and that. But now they've reopened. Right. That's Peter mm-hmm. Benchley. So he's the guy that wrote the book,
1: obviously. I did not know that. Yeah, I never so, would have got that. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's all. I, I, I love Jaws trivia. I love it. And so speak, man, so yeah. let me
1: ask you this real sure, quick. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So do you have any particular quotes that stay with you in this movie or like particular scenes that you hold on to? Well, like I say, the, uh, the, the scene with the leg
0: uh, that falls to the bottom of the ocean floor, because when I was seven years old, that's when I turned to my mom and said, I want to go home. <laughs> so that always scared me. Um, I think Ben Gardner. His head coming out of the boat is one of the greatest gotcha moments in motion picture history. I really mm. do. It's just it it just blows your mind away when you see that. Obviously, the line uh, "We're going to need a bigger boat," which was completely improvised by Roy Scheider, by the way, that was not in the script. He improvised it and they left it in because it was such a great. That's become iconic. That's become a catchphrase in the zeitgeist of of pop culture, or even just in in in. In the world, just in general of, you know, meaning, you know, hey, we're in trouble. We're going to need more help sort of thing. It's just a, a perfect catchphrase. So, I mean, that that's the one that kind of stands out for me. What about you uh, as, a, as a millennial?
1: Um, what's really weird about this film is like it's it's about a shark, but it's actually not about the shark at all which I liked it. They did a really good job of making me emotionally invested in the characters. And some of my favorite scenes had absolutely nothing to do with the shark or trying to find the shark or anything at all. Like the, the scene where they're sitting there with the, you know, the father and the son at the dinner table. And they're just kind of like, I don't know, like playing with each other like back and forth and making faces making and stuff. Making faces, yeah. It has nothing to do with the outcome of the film. You know, there's zero stakes involved with that and yet I still really cared about it and it it, it made me emotionally invested in him as a character. Yeah, well, it I wasn't even like it that.
0: wasn't even in the script. So he actually did that off off camera. He was doing it with the kid. He was playing with the kid and Spielberg saw him doing it and he goes, "I like that. Can we, let's let's set up let's do that."
1: Do yeah, would like it again. and they
0: did, and you're right. It just made that, and the, and the scene where you see Ellen Brody looking at him, and she gets caught up in it. Um, and speaking of of, of Ellen Brody, and even the other characters, what did you think of the, the the choice of the actors in this? Like, it's just perfect, you know. Like, I think um, each one of them, it's just perfect.
1: I do think it's perfect. I think everybody was cast very well. I think if I had to put i had to rank them i think robert shaw while it was a good performance it was probably my least favorite just because like the wow, you know the really? the the, the, wow. the kooky ornery like backwards old you know sea captain kind of thing i don't know that doesn't really appeal to me like it feels almost like a caricature and i know you're 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 seeing this and like your your jaw is dropping but he was probably my least favorite you know the uh uh richard dreyfuss's character i forgot his name offhand but um okay. I wish he would have had more lines in the in the film. To be honest with you, I wish it would have kind of featured him a little bit more. But um, I thought his parts were particularly strong. But um, I'm I'm just looking through my notes. There was a couple of things I wanted to touch on real quick. What did you think about how? What did you think about I, how? He hold, used- okay, well, I want to
0: come back to Robert Shaw here for a second because I okay. think Robert <laughs> Shaw was absolutely brilliant. And the funny thing was, as as always, you know, in most movies, he wasn't the first choice to play the role. So originally Spielberg wanted Lee Marvin to play it. Lee Marvin didn't, t- said no, I don't want to do it. And then he wanted Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden wasn't available; he couldn't do it. So um, the producers Richard D. Zanuck and and um, and David Brown they they had worked with uh, Robert Shaw in The Sting in 1973, and they were like, "Hey, we got this guy. Like, I think he's pretty good." And so he came on. Hell of a pain in the ass to work with because for some for whatever reason, Robert Shaw was. I think he he drank a bit, but he he was also this unbelievably competitive human being like unnaturally competitive you know just so competitive for no reason at all he was competitive in every and some of those scenes you see with him and hooper you know where he's kind of pulling at hooper and he's kind of you know bugging him and then hooper's like hey i don't want to take this abuse much longer and all that a lot of that was very very real because robert shaw was just such a a pain in the butt i thought shaw was brilliant in that in the scene when he gives his speech about the indianapolis and when he says I was on the Indianapolis, so that was originally written. Um, that that um, that speech was originally written by by someone called uh, Howard Howard Sackler wrote this, and then they wanted to rewrite it. So then then Spielberg rewrote it, and then Shaw took a look at it and said, you know what? Let me take a shot at this too. I want to rewrite it. So it's basically Howard or Robert Shaw rewrote Spielberg, who rewrote Sackler, and the 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 the, the final speech that you hear is the one that Robert Shaw wrote. So he mean he wrote that. Oh, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was. Fantastic, so I guess I understand what you're saying. He's a bit of a caricature, but i don't know, man, to me, I thought he was great i and Richard Dreyfus was absolutely fantastic you know i i think it was funny because i look back on the 70s and i think of richard dreyfuss as being one of the most um iconic actors of that decade you know when you look at things like jaws and close encounters and the goodbye girl and you know he was just fantastic in that movie he was just great and he wasn't even the first choice either i mean spielberg wanted john voight he was looking at timothy bottoms or even jeff bridges almost got it none of them would would commit to the movie John Voigt, yeah. wow yeah, <laughs> none of those guys would commit. And, and at the time, um, Richard Dreyfus had just finished a movie up here in Canada and it was called The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. And he went and sat in a movie theater and he watched it. And he's like, You know what? I better find another job real fast or I'm never gonna work again. And he went back to Spielberg and basically begged him and said, Please let me do this. And mm-hmm. everyone else was turning him down, so Spielberg said, Oh, what the heck, we'll bring him in. Because one of the things that Spielberg liked about him was he loved him in his buddy George Lucas's movie, American Graffiti. So he's like, Okay. You got the part and um, obviously did a good job. And Roy Scheider was just at a, at a party. He was at a, a Hollywood party with his agent and he overheard them talking about this movie. And he walked over to Spielberg and he said, uh, how about me? Why not me? And, and Spielberg obviously had liked him from the French Connection. So he got cast. There. I think that was casting was brilliant. He liked um, Elaine, uh, Elaine Gary uh, for Ellen Brody because her style was so improvisational. You know, she's just this improvisational actress. Ah, oh, I think the cast is brilliant. But I'm surprised that you didn't like Shaw. Anyway, no, no, so so back to don't, your... Don't get me wrong. It, yeah.
1: it wasn't that I didn't like him. It's just, like I said, out of the main characters in the film, if I had to kind of rank them, I think he would have been towards the bottom for me. It didn't do as much nearly for me. But, like, I still thought he was effective. I still thought he did a fantastic job. Um, and, like, just the other actors that you were mentioning, if I had to supplant his role with them... Uh, it, it just feels really weird and unnatural, like it wouldn't belong. But I think he did a fantastic job. It's just that particular character, you know, either in this movie or in other movies, that kind of, you know what I mean? Like that like yeah. offbeat kind of like loner type thing. It's never personally appealed to me. I could have done with less dialogue from him and more from Dreyfus' character. But like I said, we're nitpicking here. I'm just I'm, I'm no. finding things to to speak on. And it doesn't necessarily mean that like it, it, it ruined the film for me. Or anything and it's like so that. funny
0: because you got Spielberg, who now is like, you know, the god of all you know, director gods in the world. He's pretty good. And yeah, you know, not bad. And at the time he was, he was, he was a nobody. Like he had directed one feature film and one made for TV movie before he did this. He had directed a feature film called the Sugarland Express with the same two um, producers, Zanuck and Brown. And he did a TV movie called Duel about this big 18 wheeler that chases this guy played by Dennis Weaver. And that's one of the reasons why he got the movie was because they were having trouble finding a director because I think most directors read the script and, and saw right away, you're going to have a shark come out out of the water and crash into a boat and eat a guy. I, I don't want to, this is going to be a bitch to shoot. I don't want to do this movie. Like, you know, and yep. um, and so they got Spielberg because Duel was basically just like Jaws about this, you know, this thing, this lone creature, in this case, a truck that's chasing somebody around. They're like, it's kind of the same movie, you know? So let's get him on. And I mean, the, they originally, it was scheduled to be a 65 day shoot. And it took 159 days to shoot. I don't know how he didn't get fired. I, I have no idea. I have no idea how that he didn't get fired from doing this movie. And thank thank goodness he didn't. You know, obviously. So um, so I wanted to to ask you a, a, a trivia question about this movie, um, okay, sure. be- because you know all the the bloody shark attacks that are and everything like that. Um, think about it. You know today's environment, and think about back then um, when it's released in 1975. Any guesses as to what the what its rating was?
1: What its rating
0: was? Yeah, it's rating. It's you know how you know movies are rated G, PG, R. You know,
1: um, well, I mean, it shows like severed body parts and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I assume it would be like a PG thirteen. PG thirteen did not exist back then. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, but but uh, we'll get a piece of trivia.
0: PG thirteen actually came about because of Spielberg. Years later, when he did the second um, Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, when he did Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, because the M the uh, Motion Picture Association of America. They ended up changing the rating system because of that movie, because they were like, it's it's too <laughs> it's too intense for a PG, it's too intense, but it's not quite an R. What do we get? So they came out with PG-13 for that movie. But back in 1975, when this movie came out, believe it or not, the movie was rated PG. Really? Yep. It was actually originally <laughs> rated R. It was originally rated R, and it was funny. You talk about the severed part. It was that severed leg scene it was a little bit more intense, and they went back and they just recut it. To just have it just come down once and then you didn't see anything else, and it changed the uh, it changed the rating, so it made it a PG. But yeah, it was it was a PG movie. Hard to believe Jaws PG, but uh, crazy. Um, a couple other things I want to mention about the movie. So Hooper, you mentioned um, some of the characters. Like Hooper. So Hooper, believe it or not, again going back to the book for a second. In the book, Hooper dies. So Hooper dies in the book. So what happens is he goes into the cage. They put him down. The shark comes in, crashes. And remember when the shark opens up the cage and it cra- starts sticking its nose in there? In the book, it reaches in and it chomps him and kills him. And in the script, in the movie, that's what it called for. It was going to crash in and it was going to chomp him and kill him.
1: So why the deviation? From so, he- well, here's
0: what happened. They realized as they're shooting this movie, you know what we need? We need some real footage of shark, of a shark in this movie. Like we absolutely have to have you know some real footage. So, I mean, we got this mechanical shark, and as you mentioned, you don't see it for the first half of the movie. But then, when you finally do see that, do see it, you know, you gotta. You know, you see it quite a bit and then you realize, oh man, we got to have some real footage in here. So what they did was they, 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 Spielberg reached out to these people, Ron and Valerie Taylor in Australia. They were like these experienced shark photographers and he hired them to take some footage of sharks. And they said, well, we need to get a cage and put it in the water and have great whites swimming around it. But we need a person in there. Problem was the sharks that they were shooting out in Australia weren't that big. And and this shark had to be twenty-five feet long. So they made a small cage and they hired a little person. A little oh person. Oh my gosh. And they put the little person in the scuba. <laughs> but the funny thing is, Hollywood sends out this little person over to Australia, and it's a little person from Hollywood that's been, you know, does has been doing stand-in work for kids and rode horses and stuff like that. And they mm-hmm. say to him, this guy, Hey, we're gonna put you in a scuba suit, we're gonna put you in a cage down the water with the great white shark. What? <laughs> so they did. And and but what happened was they got some Some of the scenes in the movie are actually, you'll see that where the sharks, a real shark is swimming around. That's a little person in a cage. But then what happened was they, they just kept taking other shots. And they one time they put the cage down with nobody in it. And they were shooting some stuff underwater and the great white came along. But what happened was it swam over top of the cage and it got caught in the wires above the top of the cage and it started panicking and started freaking out and it started rolling around and kicking and and just going crazy. And it was such great footage. Spielberg looked at it and goes, that has to be in the movie. We have to put, we, we cannot not use this footage. It's so good. So we got to put it in the movie. Problem. The cage was empty. Nobody was in the cage when the shark did that. So they rewrote the script to have Hooper escape out the cage and make it down to the bottom of the ocean.
1: Uh-huh. and that's
0: how come he was able to survive. The end of the book is Brody swimming to shore, and it's
1: that, at the that's end of the how movie. it ends.
0: Yep, at the end of the book. But in the, in the movie, then obviously Hooper resurfaces and joins them, and the two of them kick toward shore.
1: So, so some pretty cl- clever editing
0: on that part. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, like like just funny how circumstances kind of all came together in a perfect storm to make it. You know kind of work like that the other thing too with the ending of the of the book and the way that the script in the movie was supposed to the end of the the, of the movie the shark is just supposed to die from exhaustion just like in moby dick you know it just it gets harpoons in it and it just dies from exhaustion and that's the way the book ends and and, kind and of boring and, and spielberg realized exactly that he's like you know what that's great that's kind of boring we need something a bigger moment so that's where he had um roy scheider put the scuba tank in its mouth and pull out a gun and shoot it and blow it up. You know, it was like more of a of a big ending because I think he, like Spielberg's kind of thought was, hey, if, if I've got these people, you know, for two, two and a half hours in a movie theater, I got to give them a big ending. Like, I've got to have a huge payoff. and mm-hmm. um, And so that's why he changed that part of the script and did that. So, So let me
1: ask you one question, Chris. Of course. Obviously, this is one of your favorite films of all time. Absolutely. I mean, if you look on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it has like a 98% or 99%. You know, I I haven't read a negative review of it. I personally think it's a really good film. I would give it an A, not an A+, just because it's, I mean, I don't think I give any movies an A+, but um, objectively, if you could point at any criticisms or any critiques on it or something that you wish that they would have done differently with the film, I mean, do you have anything like that that you you would, you know, want to (laughs) share?
0: I I, I hate to say it, but no, I I, no, no, it's not. It's, it's tough to say. We talked about this off air because you were saying, where does this rank in my all time movies? It's in the top three. And, and, and to me, I don't think I've ever really pinned down what it is. Um, But my top three movies of all time are star Wars jaws and um, Raiders of the lost Ark. Probably, Mm -hmm. probably in that order. So, uh, it's like the number two my two, number two favorite movie of all time. as far as I'm concerned, it's perfect the way it is. i, I can't look at this movie and think of any scenes that are like I'd like that to be done differently or this to be done differently. It's just perfect. it's 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 it, it is perfectly perfectly done and I know that's, I like you, you know it's it's I'm a you know waxing nostalgic with this movie, but I, I really believe that
1: but with good reason though it's 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 a it's a good film, you know what I mean, um I like I said, I would give it an A. I do think it's a masterful film. the pacing uh. Like I said, the casting, the score, uh, everything in the first seventy-five percent of the film, I think, is absolutely perfect. Um, I think for me, where where it drags a little bit and it feels a little, I don't know, like the pacing kind of suffers, is you know the whole standoff with the shark, where the shark leaves and then it comes back and then it leaves and then it comes back. You know what I mean? And after the big reveal, when you see the shark for the first time, that wow factor, that kind of you know that surprise and. The, the the magic's kind of gone basically for me um, I do think like you know the way that they defeat the shark and you know the gruesome ways that some of these cast members die I do think that's really effective but um, it did feel a little tired to me at the very very end of it but like I said that's a minor minor critique I still thought it was effective but um, that little bit right there would probably keep it from being like an A-plus film for me, but still really, really good. And, you know, I, I have to almost operate on a scale because, yeah. you know, this film is what? I mean, I'm not a math scientist or anything, but, you know, this film was, what, four decades ago? Yeah, you know? 42 so years ago. What, yep. what they were able to do with, with so little back then and how effective it still is for somebody like me who's, you know, grown up with – you know movies have such like you like you mentioned 10 to 15 20 times the budget that this film did you know what i mean so i mean it's it, it is a masterpiece it is incredibly incredibly effective it's And, you know, actually pretty rewatchable. So I've watched it, I think, three times now, once before, you know, probably about a year and a half ago or two years. And then I watched it twice this week. It does have some serious rewatchability, too. And and like when you talk about, you know, I I mentioned it's perfect. Like and even some of the scenes that are just
0: perfect. The, The one thing to me that's so iconic is the scene when when Brody is sitting on the beach and he sees the Kittner boy get attacked. And that that the way it's shot, like like again, you talk about non you know non technical ways of making movies and just being creative. They put the camera on a dolly in front of him, like on a set of tracks, and they they I believe they push the camera really really closely at him, very very fast, while zooming out to give it that effect where the background kind of moves and then moves in on it, you know, and he kind of stays the same a bit, you know, Mm -hmm. like just almost like
1: a tunnel vision. That's perfect
0: because you wanted everything. It was like everything else goes away. It just zoomed right in on him as he sees this attack happen after he said, close the beaches, you got to close the beaches and they let him keep it open. It's a perfect movie. It's perfect. I don't know. It's perfect movie. That's my thing. So, um, okay. So it goes back to you. The gauntlet has been thrown down. It's back to you. Um, so for the next show, it's in your court. What would you like to do?
1: I I mean, I, I hate to say this because I mentioned this movie every single episode we record, but let's do The Matrix. Let's do it.
0: Let's do The Matrix because I think we're going to have two very different approaches on that. Me as a Gen Xer and you as a millennial. You Obviously, this is right in your wheelhouse. This is a very important film for your generation. I have a different take on it. So I think that's going to be mm-hmm. a good one. So let's come back next show and talk about The Matrix. Here you go. Let's do it. Perfect. Yep. That makes sense to me. Okay. Well, until next time when we're going to talk about The Matrix, this is Chris McBrien for Yancey Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World the pop culture podcast for the generations thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast continue the conversation on Twitter at C McBrien or at Yancey Eaton please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show